Hello and welcome. You've tuned into the School of Ministry podcast. Paul is your Bible teacher today. He has years of experience as a pastor, seminary instructor, and more. Later, you will be given information how to reach us. If you have questions you would like addressed, let us know. Maybe you have a need in your life and want to know how the Bible gives answers that apply to us today. Feel free to contact us. Now enjoy the lesson. And what do I mean when I talk about common graces? What I mean is Everyone can enjoy a beautiful sunset, seeing the splendor of God's creation, a good meal, good health, a good night's sleep, all of those things, falling in love, those are all common graces that everyone, but here is the epitome of the common graces, it's marriage, and it's the best gift that God can give to humanity in general without regard whether they know him or not, or in any way. Any society that honors marriage, any society that elevates marriage, that lifelong commitment openly is a society that will be blessed, is a society that will be enriched. It will prosper. It will be safe. It will be secure. It will know peace. It will have a minimum of crime. We've seen that throughout the years, and there's been many studies along that, uh, along that line. But on the other hand, any society that fails to honor marriage as a covenant, an open covenant between a man and a woman for life, in which children are reared and cared for, and any society that diminishes marriage, fails to honor it, is corrupt. It's doomed to chaos, turmoil, evil, judgment. History bears that out as well. And when marriage for life is not honored, where the covenant vows between a man and a woman are not kept, immorality abounds. Delinquency overruns the culture. The fabric of society is shredded and de-escalates and is torn. But our Lord honored marriage by attending and doing His first miracle at a wedding. Jesus went to a wedding. His mother was there, not surprisingly. Again, how many generations of the family had lived in the little town of Nazareth? We just don't know. A few hundred people may have been there. And how well they would have known the folks that were just up the road. Their neighbors. Those people around them. It's not surprising. They're likely related, cousins, extended family, close friends. And maybe Mary was there because she, of course being a a caring, godly woman, might have been there to help in the serving, might have been there to help oversee some things, just as her character as a godly woman is demonstrated. Remember at the time of Jesus' birth, we see that she was a godly woman. She probably had some kind of a role to play in this wedding that served because when there was a problem, what did she do? She brought the problem to Jesus. So this is a major event going on, and it's understandable that it lasted for days. Some writers and historians say that they would usually start in the middle of the week, and a wedding would go on for many days, sometimes lasting as much as seven days. And when people came to this celebration, they came because there had been a betrothal. Now, in 
biblical time, in, in the Bible times, when you were betrothed, that usually took about a year, and it was a legal binding covenant contract that was only broken by death. But marriage wasn't consummated until the end of the party. So even though they were uh, in a contract together, even though they were bound together, so what happens during this year of preparation? What happens during this year? Well, the husband, the man is preparing a place for his bride. He's getting somewhere ready. He has a house to, to build. He's, he's preparing a place. Maybe it's adding on to the parent, his parents' house. Maybe it's building something separate. Whatever it might be, the bridegroom had full responsibility of all of the cost of the wedding. And his job was to get everything ready. It was a year to get everything ready. And when everything was ready and the house was built and the house was furnished, all the preparations were made. And he had demonstrated to her parents that he was able to take care of their girl, their daughter, that he could provide for her. Then the party began. Then the wedding began. And it was a great celebration because he'd been working hard for a whole year. And she'd been waiting and preparing for this. And finally the time comes. And it's just an immense celebration. And Jesus is there as well with the other five disciples we know of at that time. And they're in the celebration. But I want to just stop right here and say this. There's something really beautiful about this because Jesus has been in Nazareth 30 years. In this little town, a few hundred people, he is about to step out into the world. And if you will, for 30 years of absolute obscure private life. By the way, you know, we only know of about eight days of Jesus' life prior to his public ministry. Prior to John. Prior to uh, the temptation and some of those things. We only know of eight days of Jesus' early life. So for 30 years, he's been living in obscurity. Now he's about to begin a public ministry. And the bridge from his private life to a public life is a miracle. That's a miracle for family and friends. It's a miracle that shows everybody. And we only remember, and let me just backtrack just a little bit. And let me just say, the Levitical priest started at age 20. And for five years, they had all the book learning. They had to know the Torah. They had to know all of the laws of the people. It took them five years of schooling. Now they had another five years of apprenticeship. So they were not considered a priest until age 30, if they successfully completed it. But now Jesus is at age 30. And he enters his priestly ministry. He enters and becomes our great high priest. He is now coming out into the public. Now this didn't happen in Judea. This happened for his family and friends. They were the first ones who were to recognize what had never been demonstrated before. That he is creator God. We're going to look at that. It's a family and friends miracle. Which makes it even more bizarre when you think about some months later Jesus comes back to Nazareth and he goes into the synagogue and we see that in Luke chapter 4 and he is asked to read from the scripture and he reads from the book of Isaiah and he says this day is this fulfilled in your ears. That he is Messiah and he has come. And all he tells them that all of these prophecies are fulfilled. And the people of the synagogue. And remember these are people he grew up in. 
And these are people that he grew up with, their family, their friends, their people right there of his own congregation. And he does this miracle. And now four months later, when he stands and he says, this day these scriptures are fulfilled, what do they do? They take him out to stone him. They want to murder him. How strange. What heart-heartedness. He begins his miracle ministry with friends and family and transitioning from obscurity of Nazareth into public ministry. And notice, by the way, Joseph isn't mentioned here. It's an important fact. As far as we know, Joseph has died. He's nowhere in this context. That means that during those silent years, sometime Joseph passed away. But there were people, according to John 6, 42, that knew Joseph and Mary. And that they knew the parents. Because, but Joseph is likely dead. Otherwise, we know that at the cross... Mary is standing there, and Jesus, in John 19, as he's hanging on the cross, he commits his mother Mary into the care of John the Apostle because she's a widow. That means that now John would have been the head of that household. Once Jesus, who had been the head of that household, who had took over for his father, but once his earthly father, Joseph, had died, Jesus, as the eldest son, would have taken the responsibility of the care for the family and for the widow. But let's get back to the wedding. The wedding was this great occasion. There's no other occasion like it in Jewish life. The celebration is in full swing. Everybody's having a wonderful time. That's the party. Now's the predicament. <laughs> Here's the problem. Verse 3. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. The wine ran out. That's the problem. When the wine, wine ran out, a major catastrophe. I've laid all of the things that happen in a Jewish wedding out for you so that we could see how major this would be. That this man who had been preparing for a year, now all of a sudden, the wine is gone? Catastrophe. Social embarrassment. Because in everything he'd been taking care of, how could he have done this that they would run out of wine? He had to demonstrate his ability to take care of this girl, his wife. And now he's messed up. He, he's missed the mark. And this is what fathers who marry off their daughters fear, isn't it? They fear, is this guy going to be able to make a living? Is this guy going to be able to take care of you? Will he love you? Does he have any substance and character? It's the same issue here. The same thing here. They ran out of wine and the greatest celebration that they would ever have. And remember, life was tough. Life was hard. Labor was extreme. It was difficult in that world just to survive. And a celebration like this meant so much of the relief. And they ran out of wine. Now when the wine ran out... Hi. Let me interrupt for just a moment and update you with some information. You can now contact us at schoolofministryresources.org or biblelandmarks.com. We also now live stream services on landmarkstockton, all one word, dot com. Or you can see us on Facebook at Landmark Missionary Baptist Church of Stockton. We look forward to hearing from you. We would love to send you information. So thank you, and back to our podcast. What does that have to do with us? What does that have to do with me? By the way, that statement is made a couple of times in the Old Testament, and we find it in the New Testament from time to time. It's 
from the Hebrew, the somatic language, and it's kind of an expression. In the Old Testament, it's translated literally, what to me and to you. What to me and to you. What is it that concerns you and me together? That's the idea. Nothing. What do we have in common? Nothing. It's a separating statement. I'm completely free from you and your desires, your wishes, your advice. Wow, I never had seen that until I began to study this and recognize. He sealed this in Matthew 12. You remember the story, no doubt. In verse 46, he's speaking to the crowds. And his mother and his brothers are outside. And they wanted to talk to him, Mary and his half-brothers. And someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing, are outside, standing out there seeking to speak to you. Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand toward the disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. The only relationship I have is with people who do the Father's will. Other human relations cease. That's what he's saying. What do we have in common? You have no role to play in my life. All family connections are over. All family relationships are over. That's amazing to us. It's the opposite of the way I was taught in my Catholic years that Mary had a function and a role in his life, but he clearly dismissed that idea. In Luke eleven twenty-seven, 27, he says, Jesus speaking to one of the women in the crowd, she raised her voice and she cries out, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. And Jesus replies, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. He's completely distancing himself from Mary. He has assumed a higher position and she has no role to play. He's done doing his mother's business and he's about his father's business. And that's why he says, my hour has not yet come. This is the first time we see that statement. And we're going to see it again. It's found in chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 12, 13, 17, and just in the Gospel of John. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. What is he talking about? He's talking about the hour of his death and his resurrection. He's talking about something that's coming up. And what Jesus is saying, look, we don't have anything in common because I'm on a divine schedule. I'm on a divine timetable. And it's going to culminate in my death and in my resurrection. That's what he's telling them. That's what he's explaining to all these. And everything was going to lead to that. Every event, every issue, every circumstance is leading to that final hour. He's saying the, the phrase, my hour has not come by simply saying, that final hour of my death and resurrection is set by God and all events that lead up to it are determined by God. You're outside of the divine timetable. And Mary bows out. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. She just bows out gracefully. Okay. And then he does what she asked. You see, Jesus honored his mother. He made the point. And it just so happened that this is on the divine timetable. It just so happens. And I don't know that she knew that it was on God's plan. Certainly she didn't assume some great miracle. She probably assumed there was some kind of a natural solution here. But it was on God's list to be done there and at this point. And we go from the predicament to the provision. We've had the party predicament provision. This goes pretty quick. 
Notice what it says, verse 6. Now there were six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. So right there, we have the water and this water was used for purification. It's not drinking water. They didn't drink the water unless there was a purifier, but this was for purification. When you look at, look at Mark 7, 3 and 4, you read how the Jews purified everything. They washed hands, they washed feet, they washed the plates, they washed pans, copper pots, everything was washed and everything had a ceremony, a ritual in these purifications and so there was plenty of water because after all if this wedding feast was going to go on for days people would come and go there would be lots of ceremonial washings at every meal and there's lots of meals in a multi-day experience Think about it. There's lots going on. So there's plenty of water for everybody to wash ceremonially. And, and Jesus says, fill the pots with water. That's in verse 7. Jesus said to them, fill the pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. These servants, they filled them to the brim. That's what he wanted. And if they weren't filled to the brim, somebody could come in and say, oh, he just poured some he just poured some wine in there. But with the water all the way to the brim, there's no room left. That's the point. By the way, you have people that are completely disinterested parties here who are now going to give the testimony of the miracle. People that have no stake in the issue. They're not trying to prove anything about Jesus or against him. These are servants, whoever they are. They may have been people that had been hired to work as full-time servants. They may have been friends and folks that were willing to do this, but that's not the issue. They were disinterested parties, and they're going to give a witness and give a testimony of this miracle. So they filled the water pots with water, and they filled them to the brim, and he said, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. Now, that is the archikolitnos, the maitre d', the chief waiter, take it to him. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, when did that happen? Somewhere between eight and nine, maybe seven and eight, somewhere in there, we're not told exactly, something happens. These have been filled to the brim and all of a sudden they draw some out and took it to the head waiter and he tests it and it's wine. This is so understated. This is kind of backdoor. Where's the miracle? I mean, this is massive. How do you get wine today? Well, you have to get the grapes, right? How do you get grapes? Well, you need the vines. And where do the vines come from? Well, we see that there are seeds that come from other vines. And then you, the vine has to grow. There needs to be sunlight, water, earth. And how did you get the wine? Then they crush it. They strain it. And in our mind, my mind at least, our world wastes too much valuable time, effort, water, and land making this stuff. But that's just my opinion. But today's drink was very different from the setting that we have here. There are no grapes, no vines, no seeds, no other seeds, no sunlight, no water, no earth, nothing. He's created wine out of nothing, out of just this water. I mean, at least it could have said, wine, right? Boom! Could have done something. But I mean, this is a pretty dramatic deal here. The head waiter tasted the water that had become wine, and he didn't know where it had come from. 
But the servants knew. They had drawn the water and they knew what had happened. We have completely disinterested eyewitnesses giving testimony that he had literally created wine to replace the water. Where did the water go? And by the way, this would have been an unfermented wine that just sort of bypassed the curse. Because remember, fermentation was part of the rotting curse. It bypassed the earth, it bypasses the vine, the grapes, everything. This was the best wine ever. This is like what they would have had in Eden before the curse. So don't buy into the old lies. Proverbs says, even if you partake in it a little bit, you are a fool. You are the opposite of being wise. So it becomes apparent right away because the head waiter calls the bridegroom and the bridegroom is the guy who wants to know because he's responsible for all of this. And he says to him, every man serves the good wine first and the people, when they have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. That's just axiomatic. Everybody does that. You do that. Think about it when company comes over and if they stay and you've made a meal for them, well, they all eat and you start eating and if they stay a while, Pretty soon all that's gone. And what do you do? You begin to pull out the leftovers. <laughs> what did we have last night? We pull out the leftovers out of the refrigerator. And we're having to eat those. And if they stay very long, then what did we have the other day? What do we still have available? You see, and we keep pulling. Well, that's what is kind of being said here. Nobody does this. Nobody keeps the quality of wine until the end. Nobody does that. that this is unexpected. It's indifferent because the witness to the fact that this was wine. It was not only wine, but it was the best, best wine that had ever been consumed. It was pure, it was sweet, it was unfermented, it was delicious, like nothing that man had ever tasted before. And we have this testimony of the creative miracle by the mouth of people who had no stake in trying to prove anything about Jesus. It's amazing. Well, the party's in full bloom in verse 11. This beginning of science Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. There it is. We have seen the party, the problem, the predicament, and the provision, the purpose. The purpose is that this was the beginning of signs that would show Jesus and his disciples believed in him. Then in verse 12, after this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. It's interesting because the Greek language is an exact language. Why did his mother and his brothers, by the way, they're half-brothers, literally it means of the same womb, so they're not cousins, they're not close friends. You know, we have a thing, oh, that's my brother, you know, hey, my bro, bro in Christ. No, these were of the same womb. Disciples go along with them to see, and they go with Jesus to Capernaum. Why is that? They were enamored at what had happened. They wanted to see more. They knew something very different was taking place. Something was happening. So now we're seeing the purpose of John's gospel. These things were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and a believing have eternal life in His name. That's the purpose. That's the reason. So that we could have a knowledge. Well, I said at the beginning, this was going to be a Mother's Day. 
And we've gone all the way around, and you might say, well, this is not too flattering for mothers, except that Jesus honored his mother. He loved his mother. He was kind when he had to step out into a new role. It wasn't harsh. He was loving. He was kind, but he had to do that. On this Mother's Day, let me tell you, men, what's the greatest gift that you can give your wife or give mothers? You follow the Lord. Be a man of God. Husbands, be the spiritual leader in your home. Don't make it mom's job to train the children in spiritual matters. Mom will take the kids to church. Let your children be raised hearing the precious truths from your mouth. And maybe you think, well, I I don't know. I don't know much about the Bible. But let me tell you, you know more than a three-year-old. You know more than that little one. And remember, share the simple Bible stories with your children. They'll remember that. Set a standard in your home. Set the standard in your home. And let me tell you, wives and children will follow right along. You don't need to be a tyrant. Just be true. Don't compromise. If it's not good for the kids, it's not good for you. It's as simple as that. If kids can't watch it, you don't need to watch it. And here's what I promised mothers today. Jesus honored motherhood. Jesus honored the marriage and the sanctity of marriage, and he honors motherhood, and thus he fulfilled another commandment. But we've been talking about the dangerous times that we're living in. And maybe you are concerned, young mothers, and you know, my daughters and my daughter-in-law, they've all got little children, little ones. And maybe they fret over the day and how they're going to raise their children. I'm glad that they're all trusting the Lord. I'm glad they're all trusting Christ. But let me just say that your job is greater today than ever before. But the Lord is here to help protect them. Protect them spiritually. And help them understand that God is going to take care of them no matter what happens. You be sure that the Lord loves you. And He's going to take care of you no matter what happens. Children today are being assaulted with lies. Our families are being assaulted with all kinds of lies. That marriage is just on a piece of paper. Sexual freedom, alternate lifestyles, it's all normal. But it's not. We've seen that today. And that's why I've belabored all of these things. So that we can get down to this. All of those lead to death, to pain, and to hurt. All of those things lead away from the Lord. And that's why today we need to just recognize that in Christ and in Christ alone we have help. Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed the message. If you want to hear Paul in person and are in the Stockton, California area, we invite you to join us at Landmark Missionary Baptist Church, 301 East Alpine Avenue. That's near the University of the Pacific. He brings the Bible message every Sunday at 11 a.m. and other times as listed. We trust you've been encouraged, challenged, or generally built up spiritually. If this lesson has sparked questions on this or other topics, please see our contact information in the description or email us at sclofministry at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you.